0: So, listeners to the levity zone, as you hear the calls of the peacocks and in the background the sounds of the saw building my new wizard's abode, the Gandalf House up above on the hillside here at Ancient Oaks, I welcome you back and me back to the levity zone. After a four-month gap in which huge life transformations occurred that several wonderful listeners uh, have asked me to return and fill you in on, sometimes life throws you these huge ringers. And for me, that included a lot of stress around financial issues, uh, loss of a long-time position, and upsetting severance from my long-time company and the ending of my long-time marriage. Uh, these are big transformations. But it catalyzed me to realize that as doors are closing, new ones were opening. And so I put a call out to the cosmos last summer, basically, to say, hey, you know, I could use some help here and maybe humanity too wonderful, magnificent, synchronous field. If you can get going and arrange some miracles of recombination for me and for us, uh, I could get going in a whole new phase of life that I hadn't expected. Uh, And it's happened. In January, after returning from an incredible surprise trip to the small, wealthy Gulf nation of Qatar, I did a presentation at the NASA Frontier Development Laboratory at the SETI Institute. And at that very time, I met Carlos Calva, who overheard me talking to the government of Luxembourg people, who have a space agency, about Shepard and how to open the solar system with a new type of asteroid resource extraction now that the two companies that were proposing implausible hard mining solutions were gone. And he overheard me, grabbed hold of me, and basically said, I will do this. I'm young, energetic. I have connections to the Department of Defense and Space VC and everything. Let's do this together. So we are. So a new company is being established around the Shepherd innovation, starting now. Miracle of Miracles. This led to me going to Luxembourg where I was last week and I met with one of the heads of their space agency and presented the Shepard vision which would include satellite servicing and debris removal and changing of orbits as a stepping stone business to get to develop the fabric enclosures. The gas handling of these asteroid objects safely and securely to then go after the resources for their volatiles to make those fueling stations to then open the solar system sometime in the 2050s so that's happening Um, and by the way there's a beautiful red-headed green-bodied sap-sucking hummingbird that lives here and defends his his or her turf very well just over there on the uh, red flowers of the little Sierra Nevada shrub. All around me are blooming flowers, hanging festoons of wisteria, blooming apple trees, just amazing number of ground flowers and daisies in this most remarkable spring here on the back deck at Ancient Oaks. It's just a a sweet air, sweet, savory... Um, nourishing springtime here in in April of 2019. Just a beautiful spring here. So to give you uh, the other half of the story, also at the NASA meeting in January, I did a talk on origin of life and how that could inform the future of computing and a number of other things and AI and whatnot. And in the audience was a man named Scott Penberthy from Google's AI office. And he put his hand up and said, for the NASA Frontier Development Lab, which is a summer program with top uh, students and postdocs building a rapid fire prototype at NASA Ames in the summers, he put his hand up and said, I'd like to do that, or Google could do that. We could do that here at Google. So we met with him, and in fact, this goes back to my PhD work on the Evo Grid back in 2008 to 2011, the Evolution Grid PhD project at the Smart Lab, where I came up with this idea of a Genesis engine. And you've heard about that, I think, in the very first Levity Zone podcast, is my talk about the Genesis engine, Levity Zone number one, if you want to go back and, and take a listen. And so this is the genesis engine coming to be but with google backing it with google wanting to simulate it and what we mean by it is to simulate our origin of life scenario at google using its ai platforms and so i thought wow this is quite an opening it's a second door opening and as a result i just went to the little workshop breakout meeting and we uh we went to it proposing this as a project for the fdl and later i had the intuition that wow i need to push this forward so nothing better than a face-to-face meeting so after yet another trip here comes more saw from up above Uh, the wizard's abode is getting its uh, cladding of beautiful knotty pine on the interior and nelson and chande are now doing the tunnel we call it the tunnel which is this wonderful in a sense a rib that goes up or a cavity that goes up into the loft that allows me to walk up the now completed stairs into the fantastic eagle's head the eagle's nest and they're cutting uh the little pieces of knotty pine to be fit up on the ceiling of the loft. You can hear that. That's a kind of a a saw that does uh, little cuts. And they've mastered the technique. Nelson's learned. He and his brother Eric are largely the builders of this fantastic Gandalf house up here, which uh, at some point I'll, I'll post some pictures of when it's closer to completion. Uh, another aside, going to Thailand over Christmas, uh, I met with wonderful Darren Long and Amber and I were having a wonderful time in, in Thailand after the presentation in Japan at the Mesasa asteroid sample return workshop for Hayabusa 2. Uh, met with an artist friend of his who does these fantastic paintings? A Thai artist. You know, northern Thailand has an extraordinary tradition of of arts, and this particular fellow from a village outside of Chiang Mai, he could not only do traditional Thai art, uh, which are all these swirly animals and thick gold paint and temple complexes, but he could do fantasy art. So he had done both, and he could paint pictures of the king, the Thai king, for example. So he could also do realistic portraiture. So he was the perfect guy to do the uh, interior paintings for the doors of Durin with elvish script, which looks a lot like Thai, and a painting of Gandalf's symbology, Gandalf's personal symbols, which have come from Weta Workshop from Daniel Falconer there. So those are done, and they were rolled up in big tubes and mailed and arrived here in uh, February. Following that was um, an actual portrait of me from one of the great photos taken by Reno DeCaro, A full-length, full-height, full-sized portrait of me as the young Gandalf wizard, uh, Gandalf the Greying, in my most colorful outfit ever. And so that's here too. And some incredible Thai metal art. Thais, as you know, put up artwork on their temples, these gold kind of like prows of ships. And so I found three such pieces in the village near Chiang Mai and they arrived here a couple of weeks ago. So that's quite an aside there, but um, The Gandalf House is really going to be Gandalf's house. It's uh, under the guidance of Weta Workshop, with full support of Sir Richard Taylor and uh, the people who made the Lord of the Rings films. This is the studio in Wellington, New Zealand, which created the films with Peter Jackson. So they are the Tolkien people, and Daniel is the Tolkien expert. So I'm going to have... uh, Gandalf's house up on the hillside here. And as Warren, dear Father Warren, read us Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit in bed in Kamloops, B.C., all those years ago when we were kids, and I always loved the character of Gandalf. And Warren always identified with Falstaff, a kind of Gandalf character. So in honor of Warren and Enid, because this is using up all of their their inheritance for my bequeath. This is a house in their name. And uh, you out there in the levity zone, if you are visiting here at Ancient Oaks Retreat, or wild as we're sometimes calling it, uh, perhaps you can come visit Gandalf's house and and stay. Anyway, more on that later. But something else to report uh, beyond Google. Well, let's let's get back to Google. So much uh, to interweave for you. So I met with Scott, and I invited young Mason Hargrave, who's a brilliant student in our group, who had come to me through my TEDx talk on Shepard three years ago. And he started to work with Dave in our group, and then with David Hausler, wrote papers, won grants, uh, wrote a paper on the kinetic trap, characterizing it computationally, working with another student, the kinetic trap of the coupled phases of the cycling origins model, effectively the EvoGrid, or what I then called the Genesis engine. So I said to Mason, come to this meeting. So he came to the meeting with Scott at Google, at the Google Cloud building over the hill here. And it was a magical meeting. We didn't even present my slides. We just talked about the NASA Frontier Development Lab and the project and the power of generative systems and the combination of mathematics and simulation uh, to create predictive models and simulations for real systems. What a need there was out there. And uh, by the end of the two-hour meeting, which was only supposed to be a 35-minute meeting, uh, Scott had told Mason and myself, uh, form a company so that you have a container for all this. So that if we start writing code for the FDL, if we start to develop technologies and bring people in, we have a container for the work. So we did. Uh, So the initial idea was Delta Epsilon, the change in variance from reality, the change in error being the Delta and the Epsilon being the error. So I came up with a name that was available, epsilonics.com. that Mason loved and has adopted. He came up with Delta Epsilon, I said, what about Epsilonix? The technology of reducing the error, of converging models on reality. So we've had multiple meetings. Uh, his brilliant chief mathematics officer, Alex, we've met with him, he started writing some code, and we'll see how it goes. Our engagement with Google is forthcoming in some way. So anyway, all of that interweaving, Mason and Carlos, so Mason being the CEO founder of one company, Carlos being the CEO founder of the other, which we may be calling Flow Space or Shep Space or something like that, or Galactic Oasis, that's uh, Carlos's idea. We're all going down to the CubeSat workshop at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo next week to learn about how you make these little CubeSats, which will fly into orbit at low cost and test out the Shepard idea with a gas gently handling an object within a sealed enclosure. All that said, back to Luxembourg. So on this wonderful recent trip where I went to the UK to present the origin of life for the first time as connected to its evolution, at a conference called the Extended Evolutionary Synthesis held at Churchill College, Cambridge. A magnificent event was a Templeton-funded $8 million project over multiple years, multiple institutions looking at how evolution can be explained by more than just simple passing down of genes and traits through genes. That uh, epigenetics matters, that gene plasticity matters, that niche construction matters, that life makes niches and those niches affect future life and their way of passing information down generations that is not genetic, it's extra genetic. And of course the origin of life model that Dave and I have developed is fundamentally niche construction, is fundamentally a gel of protocells that are a survivable, evolvable unit as part of our three phase cycling. And that gel becomes the progenote, becomes the common ancestor, the common community, the common network at the roots of the tree of life, the very tips of the roots of the tree of life. And I presented this to this august meeting. And for some, according to the organizers, it was a highlight of the meeting. It was interviewed by a reporter from New Scientist and others for research projects and something new was launched there in Churchill College, a new connection between life's origins and its evolution, new insights. So I'm going to propose a project that may involve Iors Sathmary from Hungary and his colleagues on creating a new paper and a meeting around the first transition in evolution, which is the origin of life, the progenote. that's all cooking now. Goodness gracious. Um, Following the meeting in Cambridge, I went off to University College London to meet Nick Lane, who's a world famous researcher there and a leading thinker on origins of life and uh, his eight students. There's some more birds. Can you hear all the birds and the happiness of springtime around us? Making me feel so good that the world is good and it's growing again, and despite all the craziness in our heads, you know, the burning of the great cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris yesterday, the accidental fire, and just the, the sadness and the craziness and the fake news and all the things humans get up to that aren't very healthy, despite all that, spring comes and the world renews, and it feeds us another cycle once more just like the cycles of the origin of life. You know, we're renewed again by the return of the waters and the sun. Anyway, so meeting with Nick Lane was going, in a sense, to the very center of the debate, or the center of the most leading research group for an origin of life in the deep hydrothermal vents in the ocean. This is a wonderful group. They're doing everything from combinatorial simulations to attempting to do the chemistry in the lab uh, using simulated pores to trying to fix carbon to make amino acids to trying to get vesicles to form, and they've done something like that in high pH environments, actual stable membranous vesicles. But it's all been very challenging for them because they're fighting uphill thermodynamically. This huge push against the dissolving forces of ocean water and pressure and divalent cations and, and the inability to concentrate materials and then to subject them to selection. It's a tough road, and Nick recognized that. He's quite open to the sort of problems within the ocean vent hypothesis. He's, in a sense, the leading ventist, as Dave likes to call them. So he had a gentlemanly, scholarly, and friendly conversation in his office at the Darwin building at University College London, and then went down to a room where his whole student group came, and he said they were looking forward to it. So I presented what I presented in Cambridge, but updated the previous night for their group and handed around the stromatolite, the three-billion-year-old evidence for life, and the little vial of Murray meteorite extract, which they could smell the organics from and sort of almost see the membranous materials on the sides of the dried vial, to land with them that this is two evidentiary artifacts of the origin of life potentially on land, You know, the meteoritic infall feeding the pools and the fact that the fossil record shows these microbial mats as being dominant and that an origin of life on land feeds into that system starting in hot spring pool starting in fluctuating environments starting with building blocks for life far far up the thermodynamic slope than where they're trying to do them which is to synthesize them using gradients in hydrothermal vents and none of this has been shown and is more and more difficult over time to make the argument and to make the chemistry work so in the end you know nick allowed the lion to go, in a sense, into the sheep pen and present the competing hypothesis very compellingly, uh, maybe opening some cracks. And, of course, he had his own challenges to our approach, which are very valid as well. But um, anyhow, uh, Nick left a bit early because he had to do some family things, and his students stayed on another half an hour And one of the arguments that I made was, no polymers, no life. Because Nick had said, we can't even get to dimers, let alone a polymer. So in some sense, it was one of those moments in science where two hypotheses, two schools of thought, two experimental pathways meet. And they mingle and they challenge one another. And at least they are seen. One of the things that Dave's been upset about for years is that None of the Ventists ever cite our work. Uh, They never cite work outside of their own approach. And I think he's had trouble to convince Nick of our approach, but I think that this made a major move. Anyhow, so this is all coming back to Luxembourg. We're finally going to get to Luxembourg because the day before going to Nick Lane at University College London, I flew to Luxembourg early in the morning got the bus into the center of this city-state, and uh, basically walked around for an hour, went to the Oberweiss Café. It's an expensive, beautiful, very tidy European city-state, very wealthy. It's like Qatar in Europe, really. So anyway, I went back to the space agency. Very nicely decorated offices. A great gentleman, Frederic. I told him I'd found Oberweiss, and he smiled a great grin because he said, oh, that's one of the two good places to have coffee in Luxembourg. And then I presented an extended deck, really telling the whole story of Shepard. And uh, oh, you can hear more cutting back up there. Can you all hear it? Anyway, so much is going on, Levity's own listeners. So the end of the story was I presented the whole case for Shepard to the senior policy maker at the Luxembourg Space Agency, which is a a large space agency in a small country. So Luxembourg has always been into resources and trade, and I think that the leadership of the country recognized that space resources were going to be one of the great frontiers, and based on their history, they're investing. They have this great document online. You can find it at spaceresources.lu for Luxembourg, you can find this PDF which talks about the importance of mining resources out in space for use in space to create an expansion of human economic development and human presence and life itself. And they have funded a fairly large effort to do mining on the moon. And you know my views on mining on the moon. It's just really challenging. It's really difficult. It's almost like the origin of life deep in the ocean. It's It's thermodynamically uphill, I mean, in the sense that the dust, the heating, the radiation, and the lack of resources on the lunar surface create huge barriers for equipment to work. The moon, just a really harsh mistress, a harsh environment. So I came in presenting an alternative for investment. They've identified that asteroid resource extraction is an alternative to lunar, and they identified seven key technologies that they have to develop for any kind of space extraction, resource extraction. And I pointed out that we satisfy five of the seven in one device, in one system, which is extraction, processing and refinement, containment of the resource, in this case volatiles, water cracked into fuels, CO2, methane, etc., and delivery. It's one system, and one simple system, not multiple steps, not multiple platforms. And I think it took him aback. And then I presented the roadmap to get there, which is to go via satellite servicing, and via the Clean Space Initiative that ESA, European Space Agency, has already initiated, which is how to clean junk and satellites from low-Earth orbit that collision hazards that create great sprays of debris all around the earth and that maybe all of this debris is closing off our access to space if we don't handle it and with the idiotic anti-sat explosion done by India creating hazards for all the ruining of the commons of space and our access to the universe through this stupid things so I presented Shepard as a satellite servicing technology Removing satellites to graveyard orbits and deorbiting them and encapsulating them to allow robotic servicing and handling through the gas management and crude servicing later on for large satellites and servicing all of geostationary orbit with one technology for multiple clients. And that this would be the economic base to build Shepard into an asteroid resource extraction technology, uh, risk mitigation, as Carlos likes to point out in the whole strategy. And Frederick was impressed. He said, well, this meets the criteria of being innovative, having a clear business path. He said, we realize you're really early in your development because, of course, we haven't established the company yet. He asked me if we would be willing to establish in Luxembourg, and I said yes, because there's parts of this project that can be done here. The computational fluid dynamics simulations can be done at the university or at the LIST, the Luxembourg Institute of Science and Technology. We're open to that. We're seeking funding from multiple sources, mostly in the US, possibly Department of Defense. He pointed out that Luxembourg has very good legal frameworks for space resources and utilization. And he said he'd be getting back to us in a couple of weeks. I sent him the slides. So that's the interview of the opening of the door to space and in my life from the cosmic jiggler of realities to make these miracles come into being so that we have a bright and shiny future in this century and we get out of our box, out of our container of anxiety and we go into new frontiers which will create new humans, new visions, new spiritual openings, new dreams, and an escape valve from our own insanity and a mirror back upon us in our biosphere and learning how to manage biospheres, including this one. And this will all happen long after i departed, but I want to provide this as a gift for the future of humanity. And one, one last thing to close this impromptu, unscripted edition, return of the Levity Zone for our 70th podcast and a new era in the zone for you all. This is a very fun and personal thing that happened for me, going back to Kamloops, B.C., to be honored as the Distinguished Alumni of the Year by Thompson Rivers University, which when I went there was Caribou College, just a two-year college where I started to learn computers and really got obsessed in computer science. Nancy Beppel, one of my junior high schoolmates and the editor of the Sahali Star newspaper, which I illustrated with cartoons in 1977, uh, she found me online and recommended me as the 2019 distinguished alum and arranged everything because I had said I could come to Kamloops. So this was a wonderful surprise. I did a big talk on the Thursday, March 28th, in the Round Theatre, introduced by a First Nations man, Blessing the Land, and in the memory of Chief Dan George, who was very important to me and, and our family. And then uh, did the talk on space and the origin of life and our futures. And then the next night it was the big dinner, and I was the awardee from out of town, the prodigal prodigal son come home, and I was able to give a beautiful thank you to the community that made me, that created the openings, that created the, the mentorship, the guidance, the open skies and, and countryside, the scouting, the great teachers, the great schools, the great community that allowed me to carry vision and dreams and go out into the world and what a beautiful thing once in your lifetime to be able to thank your hometown and have them all there the high school teachers the cousins the new friends the old scout leaders everyone who you knew in town and uh, they invited everyone up on stage at the end of my two tables of friends and family for the group photo and in the levity zone for this episode number 70 I will not only show that picture and a few others from my recent travels but also the wonderful movie they made a couple of minutes long about my life that they just put together so anyway apologies again for the four month delay and I'm back and not sure if I can keep up the monthly pace and that's a fairly slow pace for a podcast, but I will continue to bring you these updates from the remarkable things that are going on in my life and uh, I have a beautiful interview with Mason that I'd like to give you, with Mason Hargrave, the co-founder of Epsilonics. and I have a wonderful set of stories from Prague, from my life in Prague based on an interview with uh, an author of a book about life in Prague which I could bring you. So there, there are things piling up on the pier to go on the great ship levity. And just want to leave you with this thought and this sense of this great springtime, an almost sort of psychedelic moment of flowers and uh, the sense of the psychedelic levity of positivity. And we'll all be going to Bicycle Day in San Francisco on Friday and then to the Shulgans on Easter Sunday to celebrate the glories of the color and magic of the world that you can oftentimes glimpse as has been done uh, now and then. We need that as a species, we need to get beyond TV and news and mental constructs into magic constructs. So with that deep breath appreciating the wisteria here, the bees and the construction and the life that this is. And uh, look forward to seeing you next time in the levity zone.